0: You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast at savage.love. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony,
1: well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast.
0: You could argue that Erica Adame was doing nothing wrong, Or, you could argue, and incoming, I am about to argue, that Eric Adame was doing something right. Adame is, or Adame was, a meteorologist at Spectrum News NY1 in New York City over the last four years. He was a weatherman, and he was apparently a pretty good weatherman, nominated for two Emmys for his on-screen weather work. But he got fired last week because Spectrum News NY1 wasn't the only screen he'd been working. In a statement he posted to his Instagram account after losing his job, a statement he posted before the news of his firing broke, a statement designed, he said, to control the narrative, Adame admitted that he had, quote, secretly appeared on an adult website. The statement goes on. On this site, I acted out my compulsive behaviors while at home by performing on camera for other men. It was 100% consensual on both our parts. I wasn't paid for this, but it was absurd of me to think I could keep this private. Needless to say, it didn't stay private. Otherwise, he wouldn't be posting about it to his Instagram account to control the narrative. Someone took screenshots of Adame on this adult website, which so far hasn't been named, And that someone, also unnamed, that asshole, that ingrate, sent those screenshots to Adame's bosses at Spectrum News NY1 and to Adame's mom as well. Whoever this person was, they wanted to fuck Adame over professionally and personally, and it worked, at least professionally. Adame was suspended and then fired. For doing what? Well, for doing what millions of people do every day, for doing what that French-Canadian politician I talked about at the top of last week's show did, for getting online and showing off online and getting off on showing off online. But Adame was doing something else, something more. He was doing what health authorities first urged everyone to do more than two years ago, and what health authorities literally begged gay and bi men to resume doing about three months ago. Fuck around online. Adame describes himself as an openly gay, sex-positive gay man who lives in New York City, a city in the grip of two overlapping health emergencies, the seemingly never-ending COVID pandemic that has affected everyone, and by this stage, nearly infected everyone, and the more recent monkeypox health emergency that is primarily affecting and endangering gay and bi men. The New York City Health Department issued COVID safe sex guidelines more than two years ago, and in them, they encouraged absolutely everyone, gay men, straight men, straight women, bi and pan people, furries, gimps, other kin, umbrella stands, everybody to avoid sex parties, limit your number of sex partners, and, and now I'm quoting from the New York City Health Department's COVID safe sex recommendations, quote, enjoy sex virtually such as video dates, sexting, sexy room parties, or chat rooms, close quote. And when public health officials declared monkeypox a health emergency back in April, which was about a month after I declared it an emergency here on the Lovecast, the Centers for Disease Control urged gay and by men to wear full-body latex and leather coverage to prevent skin-to-skin contact. This would be the first time, to my knowledge, that the federal government has acknowledged much less endorsed leather and latex gimp suits. But more importantly, the CDC also urged gay and by men, rather than getting together, to enjoy, quote, virtual sex with no in-person contact. And that appears to be what Adame was doing. And the proof that he'd been doing that got him fired. A quick word about monkeypox cases. They are way down. All across the United States, because gay and bi men have been getting vaccinated, which is not easy. People have had to work hard to find the vaccines, get appointments, or get their asses to pop-up clinics. But cases are falling because gay men are getting vaccinated, but also, and mostly, I think, because gay men have changed their behaviors, Which is why in August, Spectrum News NY1 was able to report that New York City was seeing a steep decline in monkeypox cases. The curve in New York City has been crushed. By August, new cases had fallen by more than 80%. You know, just three months ago, health authorities were worried monkeypox was on its way to becoming endemic in the United States, a risk we were going to have to live with for the rest of our lives forever. Now, according to a report in the New York Times last week, Health authorities are optimistic, cautiously optimistic, cautious optimism being the only kind of optimism that health authorities are allowed to admit to feeling. Health authorities cautiously optimistic now that monkeypox can be eliminated in the United States. We need to keep getting vaccines into the arms of gay and bi men, particularly into the arms of black and brown gay and bi men. And we need to get gay and bi men to continue making what are hopefully temporary behavioral changes Fewer sex partners, more gimp suits, fuck around online. A little less in-person sex, a little more virtual sex. When it comes to virtual sex, the risk for monkeypox and COVID and HIV and STIs and pregnancy non-existent. But virtual sex remains high risk for one thing, screenshots. And some people, some people are assholes. And someone that Eric Adame interacted with online was that kind of asshole. And that asshole sent those screenshots to Adame's boss and his mom, his mom, why, why his mom, who does that? But they sent those screenshots back in December. So that was post-COVID advice, pre-Monkeypox emergency advice. But still, it wasn't until a month after publishing their report back in August about the steep decline in monkeypox cases in New York City, a decline that health officials credit, at least in part, to gay men fucking around online, less in person, more virtual, per CDC recommendations. It wasn't until then that Spectrum News NY1 fired Erica Dame for doing what all of us are now being urged to do. Adame is suing. He intends to find out the identity of the person who violated his privacy by taking and sharing those screenshots with his employer and his mom. There's also an online petition you can sign asking Spectrum News NY1 to rehire him. It's at moveon.org. I signed it. You should too. Because someone should lose his job over this and get dragged in public and shamed. But that person ain't Adame. All right. Speaking of guys who got dragged last week, because of screenshots of their online activities, guys who had their privacy violated. Let's talk for just a sec about Adam Levine. First, before I say anything else, let me say cheating on your pregnant wife allegedly is bad. Allegedly cheating, not allegedly pregnant, actually pregnant. Cheating's alleged. Zero stars. Would not recommend or excuse that kind of cheating. Talking about naming the baby your wife is currently carrying after your affair partner and talking about that with your affair partner but not your wife, less than zero stars. Definitely would not recommend. That is so bad. That is grounds for divorce bad. But it's not those bad acts of Levine that people are dunking on him for all over the internet. It's his cringe sext messages. I'm sure if you're anywhere near as online as I am, you saw all of the memes, all of the It is truly unreal how fucking hot you are memes. They're everywhere, all over the weekend, all over the internet, all over Instagram, all over Twitter. I would go on about them, but Emma Garland said it better than I ever could in a must-read piece she posted to Refinery29 over the weekend. It confuses me that Adam Levine's flirty messages to model Sumner Stroh are being met with overwhelming criticism, not because he allegedly cheated on his wife while she was pregnant, but because of their subpar erotic quality, Garland writes. What nobody seems willing to accept is that sexting is fucking embarrassing because being horny is fucking embarrassing, Garland goes on. True horniness is an all consuming feeling, a spell, or rather a curse that makes you do and say things you ordinarily would not do or say. Sex, man. We all act like fools in pursuit of it. We all look like fools doing it and feel like fools after it. Generations of high school students have read and studied 12th night and Midsummer night's dream, but somehow retained nothing. Adam Levine also this weekend kind of got the me too treatment, a me too framing me too tropes about more women coming forward, more victims, not of sexual harassment or sexual assault, but of cringy DMS on Instagram which are not a crime. And people, there but for the grace of God, go you and I. There but for a few screenshots of our sexed messages, and there but for the kind of worldwide fame that would make people all over the world interested in screenshots of our sexed messages and the grace of God, go us all. Seeing screenshots of someone's flirty text is like seeing a snapshot of someone's O-face. Removed from the context and flow of a very human experience, it just looks ridiculous. Anyway, go read Garland's piece. Let's face it, being horny is fundamentally embarrassing at Refinery29. And then ask yourself, if your sexed messages were splashed all over the internet, assuming people cared to read them, wouldn't they be cringe too? And wouldn't you, right now, be cringing yourself? All right, coming up on today's show, on the micro and magnum, Savage Lovecast, tons of your Q, lots of my A. And on the magnum, more Qs, more A's, no ads. And YA author Adam Sass is back on the show to talk about his new novel and to give some advice to listeners who want to do right by the YAs, the young adults in their lives. For all that and more, subscribe to the Magnum Lovecast at savage.love. And in this week's Savage Love, I urge a married dad to do a little more dadding and a little less adventuring. And I come to the aid of a 100% straight guy who isn't wondering why these homosexuals keep sucking my cock, like the classic Onion headline put it but who's wondering why homosexuals aren't sucking his cock. Read this week's Savage Love at savage.love slash savage love right after you finish listening to this week's Savage Lovecast.
1: Dan, can you please talk about how you met your husband? I'm a 32-year-old, single-ish guy. Not sure I want a husband per se, but would definitely like to have someone more long-term in my life. And... Wondering how you transition from shorter term relationships to longer term relationships. Like, do you just kind of decide to be more patient at some point with
2: differences between you and somebody else for the sake of building something together? Or, like, I'm kind of past the idea that there's the one, thanks to resources such as this podcast, to realize that nobody's going to be everything to me. So, where is the line though? Or rather, how do you know when you meet somebody that's worth sticking it out for?
0: How did I know Terry was the close enough? Not the one. There is no one. There are the .67s, the .72s. If you are really lucky, .79, .82, and they become the one because you rounded them up to the one, and you become their one because you're not anyone's. The one either. You become the one for them because they rounded your ass up too. How do you know when that's happening? Well, I didn't know. Terry was a rebound relationship for me. I hadn't, you know, I broke up with a guy. We'd been living together for about a year. I didn't leave the house for a few months. Went out, met Terry. He was not what I was looking for. I wanted somebody who was. My age or older. I wanted somebody with a real job because I was a sex advice columnist for an alternative weekly newspaper. Uh, I wanted somebody, you know, who had, you know, been to college. And I met this guy who'd never been to college, worked in a video store. I also wanted somebody who was kinkier than I was, so I wouldn't feel like such a freak. Oh, and I wanted somebody who wasn't into monogamy. And I met a vanilla monogamist who worked in a video store who was seven years younger than I was. And for the first three, six months that we dated. He was at my house all the time. My like weird apartment that just had a mattress on the floor and one bowl and one spoon. Cause all I ate at home was cereal and he was just there and it was wonderful and it was effortless. And the whole time I was like, yeah, no, this is a summer fling. This isn't a possible LTR. And then, you know, after about a year, it had become impossible for me to imagine the next year without him in it. And rather than seeking that LTR, it kind of revealed itself to me. That may happen for you. I'm not saying go out there and find somebody rom-com style who's everything you didn't think you wanted in a man. And then, you know, that, that that's how this works. That Those are the rules. That's the system. No. What you're gonna do is you're gonna date a guy, meet a guy, hang out with a guy, and I didn't meet Terry till I was 30. You're 32. I didn't meet Terry till I was 30. So it's not too late for you. And it's you know, many gay men partner later in life than our heterosexual siblings and peers do. So don't despair that you're 32 and your LTR, your serious LTR has not yet begun. Just as you're familiar with the one, you're probably familiar with the price of admission. You have to be willing to pay the price of admission to be with someone. Many prices of admission to be with someone. And I'm bringing that up because you said, how do you learn to be more patient with differences between you and someone else? And that's where paying the price of admission often comes in. Because if you're ending relationships because you can't stand the fact that this other person is a whole other person and that there are going to, there are differences between you and this other person. Yeah. You're not going to be able to form a long-term relationship because even as, you know, maybe at the beginning two people try their best on their best behavior with each other. They're trying to be chill and accommodating eventually your individualities, uh, in both cases, both sides, begin to assert themselves, and those differences that were glossed over or that you didn't even perceive, maybe they are always there at the start, become more pronounced. How do you learn to live with them? Well, sometimes the differences are good. I'm an introvert. Terry's an extrovert. I can sometimes get him to be home, focus on something small and intimate and boring. uh, And that's good for him. And sometimes he pulls me out of my comfort zone. That's good for me. Other differences, I'm kind of neat. And Terry's kind of not. How do we learn to live with that? Well, I spend a lot of time picking up after him and that's the price of admission I'm willing to pay because he's worth it. I also don't spend any time or a lot of time yelling at him about it because that just is an engine of conflict in the relationship. And I'm happy to move through the house like an octopus with eight arms, picking things up and putting things away that have been taken out of drawers or cabinets used briefly and then left out of drawers and cabinets. My job to put them away Lots of things Terry takes care of for me, and I am grateful. And I think he's grateful that I pick up after him. If you and, you know, your relationship, when a difference as stark as that, you know, one person's a slob and one person's neat, emerges, if that for you means the relationship must end, well, then that's a you problem that you need to fix because you're going to be with people where, if you want to be with somebody over the long term... There's going to be a lot about them that drives you up the wall or that you drive yourself up the wall, really, because you can decide not to be driven up the wall by that shit, which is what I've decided when it comes to the picking up after my husband's shit. I'm just not bothered by it anymore. And that was a decision I made not to be bothered by it anymore. You can make those decisions too. And finally, there's no settling down without some settling for, and there will be times in any long-term relationship you look at the person that you're with and you you just see the settle. You just see what you didn't get out of this or what drives you crazy about this, and you can kind of lose focus on what you are getting. That's great. We have this propensity as humans to take for granted what's good and working and obsess on what isn't great, what isn't working. And that is true in relationships too. No settling down without some settling for and yeah, what you settled for, the shit you're eating to be in that relationship, that can sometimes be in the forefront of your mind. And then you look across the table and at some point you realize that they're looking at you seeing the settle, what they settled for, what they're not getting or and can't get and won't get out of you. And Those are sad dispiriting moments and you have to, in the same way you can make up your mind not to be driven up the wall or not to drive yourself up the wall about differences that are annoying. You can make up your mind to shift your focus away from what you settled for to be in this relationship to what you got, what you get being in this relationship. And that I think is my key to making that LTR work.
3: Hey Dan and Nancy and the tech savvy at-risk youth, West Coast gay guy in the mid thirties, calling in because I'm losing one of my best friends in a divorce. Two of my close friends uh, did their seven-year vow renewal a few months ago. They have since started getting a divorce. A few weeks before the party, they almost called it off because they were having issues, but then said they were going to work on their relationship and still do the party. A couple of days after the party, she found out he had been emotionally cheating with someone. Uh, he maintains it was never physical. Obviously, he fucked up big time. She was willing to forgive him and try to work on it. For some reason, they decided that he shouldn't go with her and her family to their vacation. And he went back home to wait for her a couple of weeks to think and give each other space. They talked about going to counseling, but then she got back. He asked for a divorce. She was obviously heartbroken and felt super betrayed. Uh, Throughout the weeks of this going on, I was there for both of them, listening to both of their struggles. Obviously, she was sad, and he was also very torn and conflicted. From his side, he said he stopped feeling like himself in the relationship because of the way that she treated him, among other things. I personally have seen how she has talked to him in a condescending and demeaning way, and I know I've had my struggles with her as amazing as she is. None of that excuses him cheating but since then she has asked me to not be friends with him it's him or her i think it's important to mention that i met them both at the same time technically him first i married them both times and have been close with both of them my connection is stronger with her but i'm still close with him and have a friendship with him this ultimatum doesn't sit well with me especially because she keeps saying he's a sociopath who is doing all these things to hurt her intentionally I know this not to be true. I was there. I saw him crying and I was there having conversations with him about how conflicted he was and angry at himself that he didn't feel the same way he did before. Like when you cheat, you should feel like you want to do anything to get her back, but he felt like he was too far gone. I don't feel right choosing one or the other. If the roles were reversed, I would never walk away from her. I would continue to be her friend after she did something shitty and hurt another friend. I would be a friend to both and be there to support. She thinks things are black and white. I feel like there are gray areas. Both their experiences are valid. They just conflict with one another. Again, I want to reiterate that just because I see his experience, I do not condone what he did or how he handled the divorce. He hurt her, period. But I don't think he's the terrible sociopath she's making him out to be. If he were, I would obviously not be friends with him. I feel like she's coming from a place of a lot of pain, rightfully so, and wants to get back at him for blowing up her life, but isn't seeing how she might have contributed to the end of the relationship, not the cheating, of course. Dan, how do you feel about giving people ultimatums and asking someone to cut someone else out of their life? I'm trying to do what I would do if the roles were reversed and be a good friend to both of them. I know I wouldn't cut her out.
0: Okay, arguably, this guy did the right thing. This guy did what people are always saying you're supposed to do. He fell out of love with his wife. He met someone else. He never cheated on his wife. He got involved in an emotional affair, an emotional entanglement. And it sounds like he may have needed some emotional support from someone. And I'll get to that in a second. But he didn't have sex with this person. He ended his marriage. He asked for a divorce before being with someone else. And isn't that what all kind of sort of knee jerk, mainstream, monogamous type people are always saying, you know, if you want to sleep with somebody else, do the right thing, get a divorce first. Don't, you know, you leave your partner before you take up, you, you end your marriage before you enter a, a new relationship physically enter I guess in this case maybe he emotionally entered into this relationship and that's the betrayal that's being inflated here to sociopathies somehow um seems to me you say that your friend you the woman in this relationship treated her husband your other friend badly treated him with contempt demeaned him spoke to him disrespectfully In front of you. If that's how she treated her husband in front of mutual friends, you got to wonder how she treated him when it was just the two of them. And so I can see why someone in a relationship where they're treated disrespectfully, with contempt, where they're demeaned by their partner. Publicly and then certainly privately, someone who demeans and disrespects their partner in front of other people doesn't turn into a different person when they're alone with their partner. They usually turn into a much worse version of the person who was treating their partner like shit in front of friends. And he may have, after seven years, needed some affection. Needed someone to engage with emotionally who appreciated him and loved him in a way that his own wife was incapable of appreciating him or loving him. I can understand. It's just like someone who's in a long term sexually exclusive, monogamous, sexless relationship who keeps getting rejected and and however much time and effort they put into trying to work on the relationship to repair it sexually they keep getting rejected into their sexual self esteem is just shredded and then we look at somebody like that who then you know has an affair and most of the world goes oh what a terrible person they had an affair and if you're privy to the full story as i often am you look at that person and you think it's understandable which is not an answer to your question. Like, what do you do when friends tell you to choose? Well, I think you, unless there was physical abuse, sexual abuse, I I think you refuse to choose. You know, one of my uncles divorced after 20-something years of marriage and a couple of kids, and he told everyone, you know, he told his siblings that they couldn't be friends now with his ex-wife who had been a member of the family for decades. And all of his sisters looked at him and said, my mother included, uh, my mother at the lead, and said, yeah, no, fuck that. Grow the fuck up. We're not going to cut your ex-wife, the mother of our nieces and nephews, out of our lives. You're just going to have to learn to live with us still being in contact with your ex-wife. You brought her into the family. Your relationship is now over. She is still part of this family. Again, it wasn't a high conflict marriage. There wasn't, you know, emotional abuse, sexual abuse. There wasn't serial infidelity. It just ended. And there was some hard feelings. That's remarkably similar to this. This marriage is ending. There are some hard feelings. You knew him first, you love her more, you're closer to her, but what she's asking of you is unfair. And you're not going to do it. You're not going to cut him out of her life. And you're happy to listen to her version of events. Uh, And maybe right now she needs to see him as a monster uh, to protect her own ego as this relationship ends. But As her friend, at some point, you're going to have to sit her down and talk to her about who the sociopath might actually be here. I'm not saying your friend, the woman in this conflict, is a sociopath, but she's making him 100% responsible, you know, pinning all the blame for the end of this marriage on him and not taking any responsibility for why this relationship that apparently she didn't want to see end. Ended. And if she can't ever recognize her part in it, if he just has to be a monster so that she can walk away and feel like 100% the victim, that sets her next relationship up for failure. At some point, she's going to have to smell her own shit. And you're her friend and you're there to help her smell her own shit. And the first step, the first thing you can do that might give her that insight is refusing. To end your relationship with him.
1: Hey, Dan, 38 by mail. My last girlfriend was into spanking and we had fun with that. We did it a couple times and, you know, pretty short sessions, not very intense, but it was fun. But my dog got really traumatized by it and now he keeps trying to hide behind the entertainment center and pacing around and crying. Anytime I start making out with a woman, I'm in a new relationship now with a really hot, dom lady and we want to play with some bondage and impact stuff, but don't know how to get my dog to stop freaking out. I know I can crate him or put him outside, but that's not always ideal. And sometimes he can still cry and whatnot inside the crate and really be distracting. So any suggestions you or the other listeners might have, I would really appreciate.
0: I believe you crate train a dog in the same way you crib train a human. You just put him in the crate or put him in the crib and they cry and cry and cry. You come back once in a while to reassure them at longer intervals. And otherwise, you just got to wait it out. You just got to let your dog cry it out, realize that you're not going anywhere, that you'll be back eventually and that all the whining in the world or all the crying in the world in the case of a human infant or human toddler isn't going to get him out of the crate or the crib, so you're just gonna have to tough it out. I say all that not being much of a dog person, although I have lived with now, three dogs currently live with two dogs, all of which were crate trained successfully. So if I can do it or I can watch it be done is more like how it went down, I'm sure you and your new dom girlfriend can do it too. Hi,
4: Dan. Non-binary, polyamorous person from Southern California here calling in. So I have been polyamorous for a couple years now, and I live with my partner. Him and I were poly going into the relationship. You know, it really is the relationship structure that works for both of us. But I'm having this really bizarre thorn in my side And I'm hoping that you can help me, Dan, because I know you have a husband and a boyfriend and Terry also has a boyfriend. So I am currently like just starting to date around to find a second partner besides my nesting partner. Um, My ex-girlfriend and I broke up and, you know, I'm ready to like kind of get back out there. And my partner, he has a male partner that's kind of like a friends with benefits situation. And then his other partner who is very much like his girlfriend and... For some reason, I am finding myself feeling feelings of jealousy only over his female partner. And the the catch is, I adore her. We are really good friends. She talks to me sometimes more than she talks to him. And there is even kind of like a flirtation going between her and I that we are even interested in each other. But it's like, I just cannot shake this feeling and this guilt. It may have something to do with the fact that though they've been together for a year, they are just now starting to become physically intimate because of like trauma and whatever she wanted to wait. And my partner being the wonderful person he is was very patient with that. And I just don't know why it is just really eating at me. And I'm feeling so much guilt and shame. And I'm I'm hoping maybe you can help me unpack
5: it.
0: I have a theory, non-binary person Southern California, about what might be going on here. It's a little Occam's razor influenced. Occam's razor is the idea that the simplest of competing theories should be preferred. You know, the obvious answer is usually the correct answer. And it seems to me, and this is pretty binary, this theory that what's going on here as you're Boyfriend prepares to become intimate with his girlfriend, who's a person that you like and enjoy talking to and spending time with. And obviously your boyfriend has invested a lot in this relationship. He's waited a year uh, until his girlfriend was comfortable becoming intimate. That speaks to a real bond there. And I think that you may find her, his girlfriend, that he's about to become intimate with physically, a little more threatening than you find his boyfriend for, again, and I'm almost afraid to say it, kind of, sort of, the obvious binary reasons. I'm going to go out on a limb here, and based on uh, your voice, I'm going to assume you were assigned female at birth, as was your boyfriend's girlfriend. So what she brings to the table is mm, pussy. What you bring to the table are... However it is that you prefer to describe your genitals. I don't want to assign gender to your genitals and offend you in any way. But yeah, that seems to me what may be undergirding this. You may have, at least when it comes to your own gender identity, transcended the binary, but some part of your subconscious is tapping into the binary that the girlfriend represents, that... I guess genital end of the binary that you both find yourselves on. You know, you frequently hear from people who open their relationships uh, where both partners are bi that they're comfortable, more comfortable when their partner seeks Outside the relationship, you know, if it's a guy, you know, outside of an opposite-sex relationship, he's sleeping with men outside of the relationship. Or if it's a woman in an opposite-sex relationship who's bi and it's open, she's sleeping with other women. And the guy that she's with is sometimes more threatened, feels more at risk of being replaced if she is sleeping with other guys. For a lot of people in open relationships, by people like both, Uh, you and your boyfriend, or pan like you and your boyfriend, I don't know how you identify on that front. It can be a little scarier. You know, people aren't their genitals. We understand that. But on some level, we worry that something that makes us unique to our partner becomes less unique if they're able to get exactly that elsewhere. Not that we believe ourselves to be just our genitals either, but on some level, it is a bit more threatening, which is why in a lot of open relationships where everybody's by, hall pass initially, you know is for same-sex partners if you're with an opposite sex partner in the nesting relationship because people are just a little less threatened when their partners getting what they don't get at home out of their other non-nesting or secondary or tertiary partners seems to me that that's what's going on here with you. Seems to me that with a little thought, and some conscious effort, you, non-binary you, should be able to get past
1: that. Hey, Dan, I have noticed that there have been a lot of folks that I follow on social media uh, in the last few weeks who, gay men, who have posted that they've gotten their monkeypox vaccine. And I am super happy that they were able to do that. But majority of those folks were in what I assumed were long-term monogamous relationships. I'm just curious is the vaccine something that folks in long-term monogamous relationships should be getting? Is it wrong to assume that if they are posting that they've gotten their vaccine, that maybe those folks aren't in as monogamous relationship as I had thought they were? Obviously, that's private. They've never shared that they're in open relationships. But is kind of sharing your monkeypox vaccine that you've obtained kind of a low-key way of folks admitting that maybe they're not monogamous or they're more promiscuous than I had imagined?
0: If you were house-sitting for a gay couple that you thought to be monogamous because they told you that they were monogamous and you found condoms in the bedside table or you found a bottle of PrEP or two bottles of PrEP, prescriptions for both men, in the medicine cabinet, you could then assume, I guess, that they weren't monogamous, that they were somehow lying to you for shits and giggles. Or maybe they're just... Two guys who think they'd rather be safe than sorry, two guys who are in a monogamous relationship but are realistic about the fact that shit happens, people cheat, and it's better that you don't cheat. It's better that you don't violate your partner in that way or betray your partner in that way. But, you know, if you are going to cheat, you could, in that moment, if you're on prep, protect your partner from being exposed to HIV through you or use condoms in that moment if you're going to cheat and protect your partner from HIV and other sexually transmitted infections. That could be what's going on here with these guys who are publicly monogamous and getting vaxxed against monkeypox and posting that they're getting vaxxed against monkeypox. Could also be that these guys are in a monogamous relationship, but they go to circuit parties and they like to get sweaty and grind with each other and other men on the dance floor, and they've heard that that's a risk. Or they could be like male couples who participated in, oh my God, a study I read like 25 years ago, who identified themselves to sex researchers as gay male monogamous couples. And the sex researchers followed up with these couples, asked them more questions, wanted to know more about how monogamy worked in male same-sex relationships. And what they found in the case of many of these men in these quote-unquote monogamous Relationships was that they defined monogamy a little differently than most straight couples would. They only had sex with each other, and sometimes they had sex with each other and somebody else. That three ways, so long as they were both there, fell within a lot of these male couples who participated in this one study within their definition of monogamy. That could be what's going on with some of these guys we are monogamous we only mess around together sometimes together we mess around with other people the one thing you know this is all speculation the one thing we do know for sure is, is none of your business really i mean if these guys are social media influencers and they're putting their relationship out there and they're talking about their monogamous relationship i guess they have invited you to wonder speculate about their relationship. You're not invading their privacy. You're not pulling open nightstand drawers looking for condoms. You're not rifling through medicine cabinets looking for bottles of PrEP. They put this out there about themselves. Everybody who's gay, everybody who's male, gay, bi, or a man who has sex with men who does not identify as gay or bi should probably err on the side of getting the vaccine as soon as they possibly can. Ideally guys who are at very low risk and a couple of guys in a monogamous relationship are at very low risk of contracting monkeypox. Maybe should let others who may be at higher risk go first, but if vaccines are available and you're concerned that you or your partner might slip up and you don't want to become exposed to monkeypox or you and your partner occasionally have a three-way or get Messy and sweaty on a dance floor, grinding against other men together, even if dicks don't touch holes or mouths, and you want to get vaxxed, you should get vaxxed. And if these guys have some influence on other guys who follow them, and seeing them be very public about getting vaccinated against monkeypox inspires other men who may be at higher risk to go get vaccinated as soon as they can get vaccinated, well, that's to the good.
6: Hi, Dan. I volunteer with an organization who helps refugees in the U.S. In that role, I have been helping a woman learn English. I meet with her at her house every week, and as a result, I have gotten to know her family very well, and I enjoy spending time with them. Her 14-year-old son was bullied in school at the end of the school year, with kids calling him gay. He has denied being gay, and nothing that I've seen specifically points to him being gay, Except some very stereotypical things. He is very artistic. He has no interest in a girlfriend. He is very kind, sensitive, and not always proving his manliness. I know how stereotypical those comments are, but I wouldn't be surprised if he is gay. And if he is, I want him to know it is okay and that things will get better. But for me to openly assume he is gay seems completely wrong of me. Knowing your previous advice, I thought I'd give him a few books in English to read over the summer, real casually. One being Harry Potter, to cover up and make it less strange that the other young adult book features a gay character. But I never got the chance to give these books to him, as his mom is extremely Catholic and went on a rant about Harry Potter and witches. I could go on about how strict the mom is, but my question is, how can I support this kid, who may or may not be gay, whose mom I would like to respect as I do value my relationship with her as well. I want to be subtle, but get the point across that I am a safe person if he needs one.
0: Joining me to help tackle this question, Adam Sass, award-winning YA author of the conversion therapy thriller, Surrender Your Sons, his newest book, The 99 Boyfriends of Mika Summers, a rom-com about a queer boy making the jump from imaginary boyfriends to real ones, now available wherever you buy your books. Hey, Adam, welcome back to The Lovecast.
2: Well, thank you so much for having me back, Dan. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So uh, I haven't had a chance to read the new book. I have a feeling for what it's about based <laughs> on uh, what I just read. So uh, tell us about it.
2: Well, um, it's 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 much different from my first one, which was all very, you know, it's, it was based in, you know, in, in conversion therapy camp. It was a thriller. It was very scary. Heavy. Uh, and this one I decided to go completely the other way. This is a very, um, this is for the Heartstopper crowd. This is a rom-com that is uh, lists. So this is uh, my, um, my like, kind of salute to bringing Nora Ephron-type comedy to the teens of today.
0: Well, I can't wait to read it. I really, really enjoyed Surrender Your Sons. Well, thank you. uh, It sounds like this is a little in the vein of Heartstopper, then
2: absolutely what i wanted to do with this one was show kind of the unique way you know as a long time uh savage love listener um i wanted to bring a little bit of that kind of unique like because our relationships are similar but then they divert in different in different ways so i really wanted to show like how that was different and a big part of that is a lot of us date later in life micah has a best friend who's um who's straight and she started dating in you know, middle school, and he's a senior in high school, going to be a senior, and is has been wanting a relationship for the longest time, but all of these, um, and he's been out, but, like, has not dated, has not taken that leap to actually asking someone out and making that kind of real jump. So the 99 Boyfriends are all of these imaginary pressures that he's basically had in his head, because it's, it's much more comfortable to, you know, have these sort of invented lives that are a little safer and a little more protected And then uh, he makes a promise to himself that with Boy 100, he is going to make that leap. He is going to make the dream guy reality. And then he goes through a a very long journey towards discovering that real-life boys are um, not necessarily dreams. They have their own issues and their own baggage and their own journeys. And so it really looked at um, the different types of You know, when you're a cis gay boy dating, like there's a lot of the guys you were dating are, you know, we're all in the same kind of boat where we're all starting a little later. We're all starting with different baggages that we have to deal with. And so I really wanted to look at the unique struggles within that, within this, but in like a very cutie, hearts on the page kind of way.
0: Okay, let's talk about uh, this kid's struggle. Um, Yeah. First of all, this call. Remember when people ranted? When people ranted about Harry Potter, it was because of the witchcraft and not everything else. Kind of a nice throwback.
2: I was like, "Well, I can't believe I'm on the I can't believe I'm on the mom's side here, but just not without without the witchcraft." I was like, "Yes, get rid." Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's funny how um, I I could probably honestly I was like, you know, please. Uh, I think Percy Jackson is a much better book to to kind of you know if you're going to sandwich the LGBTQ books um, in between something more neutral, I would say Percy Jackson is the is the is the famous classic.
0: She literally wanted to slip a YA book in there, <laughs> uh, which is why I thought to invite you on. She wants to mm-hmm. slip a YA book in there. Um, surrender, your son's might be a good choice, but it might hit a little too close to home if this caller, if this kid's mom is intensely religious and intensely homophobic. That's basically the plot of Surrender Your Sons, where it a kid is. is packed off to a conversion therapy camp by a homophobic mm-hmm. parent. But getting into the to, to the nitty-gritty of the, the call, the caller says nothing points to this kid being gay and then lists everything that I think <laughs> points to this kid being gay. Yeah. Artistic, not interested in girls, he's kind, he's sensitive. Yes, these are stereotypes, but... Sometimes there's whole beaches worth of grains of truth, you know, whole beaches of of, of grains, Mm -hmm. whole wheat fields of grains of truth um, in those kinds of stereotypes. So odds are, if I had to venture a guess... (laughs) This isn't the sensitive, artistic straight boy. This is probably the sensitive, artistic gay boy.
2: I was going to say, it can always be, he can always be that, that you know, I think we all have that straight guy friend who threw off all our gaydars in college. Um, but, um, you, know, there, you know, the more things change, the more things stay the same. I think there was a lot of, you know, he, he doesn't go that way. There's, there, there's a lot of, like, there's just, that coded language is just going to be with us forever because because I think in these situations, we, even if the signs are, like, so clear, you know, you do have to kind of dance around that. And I think she's doing everything right right now, which is surrounding, like, you have to, like, kind of place this kid in the environment where, I'm a safe person. This is, you know, these things are cool. Um, Even if maybe your mom isn't cool with it, I'm the cool, you know, aunt or the cool friend.
0: Right. A 14-year-old gay kid, though, who's been bullied for being gay, if you go to that gay kid and you're like, hey, I'm supportive, I'm Mm -hmm. pro-LGBTQ, it's great that you're gay. You're gay, right? That kid is likely to run screaming from you because if that kid isn't ready to come out yet and isn't in a safe place living with a homophobic parent, a deeply religious parent, that's obviously not in a safe place where that kid can even contemplate the risk of being out. A kid with a, who's queer with a homophobic parent is in such a vulnerable position. Yeah. And so when the caller says how best to support this kid, you got to be subtle and you got to let the kid lead it. You can send up a flare that says mm-hmm. you're a safe person to come out to, but you can't put that gay kid on the spot. And maybe smuggling gay YA into his possession that his mom might find is going to put him on the spot in an uncomfortable, perhaps hugely problematic way. His mom goes right, ballistic.
2: The thing about gay YA, which is very cool right now, or LGBTQY, I should say, is there are in the last five or so years there's been a huge boom. So there are titles you can pick that are more stealth than others. They're ninety nine Boyfriends of Micah Summers is the gay, like, holding it would, like, have freaked me out as a teenager. Like, I would just, just holding the book, I would have been like, oh, God, it's it's a purple cover, and there's hearts on it, and it says boyfriends, and then guys and a boy's name on it. Like, it just would have, you know, y- you do melt down because it, it's, you don't want to be seen. You want to be seen, but you don't want to be seen. Um, so I mm. think you really, you're right. Like, you have to be extremely subtle. And I think there are, in the YA community who do write queer books, we try to create an ecosystem where there's sort of two different hemispheres where there's one where the covers are very proudly queer there's you know boys holding hands boys you know intimacy on the covers you know you know queer people having intimacy on the covers and then there are the, the books where it's like you could read this you know with your homophobic parents standing right there and they would never know it's your little secret so, and, it, and it's not on the jacket, and it's not on the jacket. Like, there, there, are, there are titles that I would recommend. I would probably say um, Aiden Thomas's work. Aiden Thomas is a, is a, um, is a queer trans uh, author who is very, very huge right now. Their book, uh, The Sunbearer Trials, just came out. It's a big Hunger Games that's filled with, um, you know, across the, the rainbow spectrum characters, but the, the, the plot on the jacket is very, you know, Hunger Games-y. Like, it's not as clockable as some mm. other books are. So I would say probably check with like if you have a cool librarian, like a local librarian, or if you go into local library and you see an LGBTQ section and you know this librarian is cool, I would probably talk to them about you know, hey you know, hey, I've got this 14 year old. things are very, very you know tight and tense and I don't even know if he is that I, I just want to you know make sure that he has access to these books because even if completely randomly he ends up being straight, This kid's going to know a bunch of queer people in their life. So, you know, it still would help to have this literature.
0: Yeah, isn't that just the thing? If he is the rare, artistic, not interested in girls, kind, sensitive, 14-year-old boy who's going to grow up to be straight, he's going to be the kind of straight boy who's going to have a lot of queer people around him all his life by Mm -hmm. dint of being artistic and sensitive and eventually interested in girls. Maybe he'll eventually be interested in girls. When you were 14 years old, you weren't out, right? No, I was out at like 19 to myself. And then it was
2: like 21 later. It was a little bit late.
0: Yeah. So what was it that if someone could have entered your life at 14 in such a way so as not to panic you or freak you out or out you to others around you or to your parents uh, when you weren't yet ready to come out? What could they have done or said around you that would have let you know that this is a person that I could come out to if I was ready to?
2: So I've I've been thinking about this a lot. This is, you know, my parents did know everybody you know a lot of my family did know i was not i was not a subtle child so i think at 14 i were wait 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 wait,
0: let me guess you were artistic not interested in girls (laughs) kind and sensitive i I was all
2: of those things unfortunately i did fit the mold so i what i would say is so so looking back now i do see that my parents and family did a lot they you know they took we, we lived in in a in a deep, um, you know, farming town in the middle of Illinois, but they regularly took me to um, Chicago so I could be around, you know, lots of other people. They took me to shows and theater and uh, Second City Comedy. And I was 14 when the movie In-N-Out came out. So with that, with Kevin Klein, So like, so again, we were starting, like Will and Grace was starting kind of. And so it was sort of that, it was a kind of a good time for the, like there to be you had access to these sorts of things, so again, it was sort of like, "Hey, we're going to watch this because we love comedy."
0: So, the, the people sending up flares in your life, letting you know it would be okay to come out to them, were your own parents. They were, they were, and my
2: and my aunt, and you know, and 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 my and my art
0: teacher, uh, and my
2: English teacher, all the all the cliches.
0: And it still took you until you were 19 to come out to yourself and into your twenties to come out to other people. So that's a lesson for the caller here. Mm -hmm. This kid is only 14. This kid has parents who are a parent who is not supportive and you may send up all the right flares and it may still take this kid five, six years before they're ready to come out to you or anybody else. Mm -hmm. So don't rush this kid, send the flare up, trust that the kid is if they're gay attuned to that sensitive to those flares and signals on the lookout for them. And still you can let them know you're the safe person, the right person, someone that they can come out to someone they could rely on. If shit hits the fan with mom at home Mm -hmm. and still they might wait. Don't rush this kid.
2: That's what I was going to say. Like you're going to be this, this, this kid's advocate for life. You know, if if you're going to be their advocate, like you're in this for the long haul. So this is something that, you know, could take a while and especially you know we have been seeing an alarming pushback you know with the don't say gay bill and we've had queer YA books challenged in every library and like every state it feels like every day there's a new challenge there and so again there is a very concerted purposeful movement to remove these kinds of advocacies so you know get comfortable being subtle now because it, it could be it could be illegal to be more than subtle soon. Um, that, that's it's it's extremely aggressive right
0: Ugh, now. That is, you, when you were saying earlier, go find the queer or ally librarian, I was thinking, yeah, go find them right now because queer and allied librarians are losing their jobs mm-hmm. in small shitty towns all over the country because of this moral panic right-wing mm-hmm. haters have stirred up about Grooming, and it's not about grooming, getting YA literature, that's young adult literature featuring queer characters Mm -hmm. into the hands of kids who might be queer or might know other kids who are queer or are going to encounter queer people all their lives because queer people are out and are going to be a part of everyone's life. Um, There's nothing that you can do about that. And it's, it's terribly concerning. However, you know, on the flip side maybe these efforts to wrest queer YA literature out of the hands of kids is making it more fun to read. Like has anyone out there trying to ban books, Google the Streisand effect? (laughs)
2: <laughs> well, that's it's so funny. I, and I actually mentioned the Streisand effect and in, in Micah Summers, it's, a, it's a, like it's, it's in the lexicon now. So the problem what we're facing here is, is that it's, it's going to be immune to the Streisand effect because what they've done is because these lawsuits are everywhere and they're not just firing librarians uh, or driving them out of their jobs. Sometimes in some counties, they are just closing the library. They are they're, they're, It's no books for anyone because, again, for the people doing this movement, that's fine by them. They don't want public school. They don't want public library. Reading opens the mind to different things. And that's the last thing these people want. It's very fascist. So I think the thing is, is that we're seeing here, which is it's not going to have that effect of like, oh, this book is banned because a lot of times you're not going to know the book is banned. You're going to see a quiet suppression. You're just going to see, oh, we're just not picking that book up for whatever invented reason we have. Not because we are systematically only picking a certain type of book now, because we don't wanna have to close the entire library.
0: All right, can we keep you on the line for one more call?
2: Happy to.
7: Hi, Dan and everyone. I'm calling from the Midwest. I'm making my annual trip to see my family, who for the most part, I have cut out of my life. Basically, I have a little brother, He's 12 years younger than me. He's from my dad's second marriage. So same dad, his mom is my stepmom and he's kind of the only reason that I make an effort to stay tethered with this family at all. And what that looks like is like occasional family group texts, but never anything that deep. And then this kind of once a year visit for his birthday. For many, many reasons, he is growing up in a different style than I did. Our dad... Has bettered himself in a lot of ways, gone to rehab, is working less, is way more invested in being a parent. All of these things I'm super, super grateful for and want my brother to have the best growing up experience as he can. But in other ways, I've watched this family, like specifically my dad and his wife, become kind of shittier and shittier Christian conservatives. Me, being an adult, I'm 27. There are things that we just don't discuss. They know that I'm queer and have worked for Planned Parenthood, and things like this are just generally not asked about swept under the rug, which, to be honest, I prefer to fighting about it because I, again, am not so invested in my relationship with them, but want to be able to have this tie to my brother. My brother is a teenager now, and growing up, especially when I had moved out of the house, he was five years old, and I kind of always imagined that it would be coming from him Uh, kind of realizing how fucked up his parents and church and everything else that they're kind of creating for him are. And I could hopefully be his trusted adult sibling who could offer support and resources and things like this and just kind of have his back we have a great relationship, my brother and I, and I'm pretty open about my life. And when I, when he was 14, I bought him Erica Moen's Let's Talk About It book, which was a great recommendation, by the way. Thank you very much. And and things like this that I kind of tried to gently offer a alternative route to kind of his parents' world and worldview without kind of going too hard all at once because I do only see him once a year. So now he's a full teen, he's in high school, and I have been getting nervous about how to talk to him more deliberately about decisions to make in the world or how to be a good person. (laughs) It's occurring to me now that his voice is changing and he's taller than me that he's actually going to be a wealthy white guy out in the world soon and I have a responsibility to make sure that he's not only good for himself but that he's also a net positive in his larger community and I'm not quite sure how to intervene. For instance, his school's eighth grade field trip, the class I found out went to the March for Life in DC and there are like doted on pictures of my baby brother holding signs that say, pray for the end of abortion. Obviously with the overturning of Roe, there is this like spark under my ass to kind of get my stuff together and directly talk to him now that he is older and not a kid anymore. And so that's my question for you. How to talk to him without being the scary, older sister who just shows up once a year and is of the devil that he shouldn't listen to.
0: I guess this is a case where it would have been, I bet a little better if that kid were more artistic, more kind, more sensitive, you know, yeah. some kids raised in conservative Christian households, it, it, they don't conflict with it. They don't rub up against it. They don't rebel mm-hmm. from it. It works for them and they get sucked into that and watching, a, you know, your half sibling, just sort of swallow the shit his mom and your dad are shoving down his throat about how the world works or how Christianity is supposed to work. yeah, that must be very depressing for the caller.
2: it's it's my heart goes out because again, this is something that I mean, especially in the last few years, we have seen increasing intensity on and it's it not just it's not necessarily just um you know, straights. there's a lot of you know there there was a there was a a, a young kid years ago who's gay that I mentored and now he's a, he's a, he's a gay for Trump. I feel, I feel like a huge failure. Um, oh God, and, oh God, oh <laughs> as, and I didn't know, I like, I lost track of him for like a few years and then I he just popped up, um, you know, in, in one of those like, you know, gay for Trump pool party, the awful pictures. And I just like, it was, it was just like coffee cup fell out of my hand, smashed on the floor. Like, it's awful. And I think that's the, that's the most insidious thing about what's going on right now is because a lot of times conservatism I have found is, is, is about aligning yourself with power. And I think a lot of people who are very scared, you know, and that it can include, you know, young queer people, you know, just to stay on their parents' good side. I mean, they create this environment of don't you want to be on my good side? You want to adopt all of my talking points. And that can be um, extremely toxifying if you don't have, you know, if, if you shut out anybody else in your life. And so caller just seems like they're in, in a huge predicament. And again, this is, I think, like, like, a, like, the, like a previous caller, I think this is a lifetime sort of advocacy pro- project where this is, um, it's, it might not get solved overnight, and this person might go through a huge conservative era. And then maybe with enough time, if they know that you are a safe, cool person who kind of handle things in a chill way, they get disillusioned, hopefully, God willing. And then you're there to help direct them uh, to the right places to begin making that kind of penance. But um, choices are limited.
0: The choices are limited. You can't, you know, light a fuse that ignites the bomb of some sort of teenage rebellion that you were hoping to see from this kid. But you can stay in his life and just your existence and your presence will create in him perhaps some cognitive Mm -hmm. dissonance and cause him to examine the gap between, you know, the world as his parents describe it or think it should work and your life as you live it unashamedly and out and then yeah. let time be on your side. Like, hang, wait, we'll yeah. see.
2: Well, cults don't want outside voices. So the more you're just around and the more you are just offering, you know, just by existing around them, you know, that you're, you're giving them a challenged viewpoint. If you back away, again, do this to your own emotional and physical safety, but... You know, if you're around, you know, you offer that counterpoint. If you're not around, they continue to have more and more bubble tunnel vision. Every viewpoint is not challenged. Um, And it beca- it'll become harder and harder for the caller for says, says that she out. kind
0: of pulled away from her family, except to be there for this kid, for her half brother. Right. You know, at a certain point, if your half brother turns out, if it's not a phase, if he turns out to be as shitty as your dad has become and as your stepmom always was, you don't have to keep going home. you don't have to throw good vacation days after bad in hopes that showing up is gonna peel him off the parents and you can maintain contact in case he ever needs you and wants somebody to run away to um, but maybe you can send letters and emails and texts and not have to keep traveling to see them if they've all succumbed to the shittiest version of Christianity, which just seems so popular and viral right now.
2: Yeah. It's, it's a new hot thing. Um, It's, I think, you know, Dan, you've said this before, which is, which is a lot of times our greatest power is our presence in their lives. And so if it gets to that point, the wake up call you might be able to do for your, for your, Um, brother is 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 say i'm not going to be around here and here's why and if if i'm I'm sure this brother really really loves his sister and wants wants her around and to suddenly be robbed of that you know that, that i mean that's a very nuclear option but again it is i think it is a very powerful option so if things do get really bad to that point make make it very clear i'm not around anymore for this reason um should things change.
0: And don't fall and don't fall for that right-wing bullshit that the left-wing members of the family have to keep their mouths shut to keep the peace while the right-wingers wear their Trump hats and head off to mm-hmm. the March for Life and stomp around and scream and yell. And the left-winger, if they say, actually, I'm pro-choice, actually, I have queer friends, or I'm queer, that you're the one creating the conflict. You're the one shoving it down their throats, is what they'll always say, even though they're the ones... Who are putting it out there, putting their stupid political beliefs, their toxic fascist political beliefs out there, and their conservative religious beliefs out there. They just don't want them challenged. And your presence can challenge them, but you should also feel free to speak up uh, and confront your brother, confront your parents. And if they can't handle it, yeah, don't, don't make yourself present. Don't show the fuck up. Adam Sass, award winning young adult author of the conversion therapy thriller, which I really, really enjoyed. Surrender Your Sons. I haven't had a chance to read his new book, 99 Boyfriends of Micah Summers, but I will. Adam, thank you for coming on the show. Where can people find you online?
2: Uh, Well, you can find me on uh, social media at TheAdamSass, and you can check out my website, adamsassbooks.com. Surrender Your Sons and the ninety-nine boyfriends of Micah Summers are available wherever you buy your books,
0: and you should be buying books while you can, because who knows what, whether we're going to be able to buy books in a couple of years. I was just going to say,
2: I'm unemployable otherwise. So please keep me keep me doing this. Otherwise, I'm going to have to start writing about straight people.
8: Hi, Ben, Nancy, and the at-risk youth. I am a forty-three-year-old cisgendered woman on the West Coast, a Magno subscriber. I'm a single mother of two, and I am divorced. I got in my first relationship after the divorce with a man that was six years younger than me. And after we've been dating 11 months, he has dumped me because he wants to father his own children. He does not have any kids. And he doesn't want me to endure a high-risk pregnancy on his behalf. Also, because he doesn't think I can engage with his elite Ivy League friends. While we were together, he encouraged me to explore my kinks. Turns out I have a lot of them. He was the dom to my sub. I trusted him so much, and we explored and played beyond my wildest dreams. It's been a week since the split, and I'm still devastated. He asked if we could still hang out and see each other, and I told him I wasn't sure, that I needed to figure out how to be around him without loving all up on him. Now I'm wondering if it's okay to reach out to him to see if we can continue with our DS dynamics, or if it would just fuck with my mind too much. I live in a small rural town and have no idea if there's a local kink scene. The closest city is two hours away, and I've never online dated, and I'm I'm pretty apprehensive to it.
0: Fuck that guy! Don't hang out with that guy. Don't see that guy ever again. Why would you give that guy? The time of day, Uh, not because he, you know, cranked you up about DS dynamics and encouraged you to explore your kinks, and not because he wants to have his own biological children in some future relationship and doesn't feel it's fair to ask you to endure a potentially high-risk pregnancy, although it seems to me that that's a decision that you could make and not a decision that he should make on your behalf the thing that really sticks in my craw about this guy and makes me loathe him is this doesn't want you hanging out with his elite Ivy League friends. What the fuck is that? What kind of nagging, undermining bullshit is that? That made me so furious on your behalf. (laughs) Fuck this guy. Fuck this guy. All I can think right now is fuck this guy. And by fuck this guy, of course, I mean, don't fuck this guy. As John McWhorter unpacks in his terrific book about uh, dirty words. Fuck means so many things. You can say, fuck that guy. And it means, yeah, go fuck that guy. But usually when we say fuck that guy, it means don't fuck that guy. Don't fuck that guy. And don't underestimate your marketability on, in, in the kink scene. Even if you're in a small town, there are a lot of of guys out there who are into BDSM. There are way more kinky guys than there are women who are kinky or know they're kinky or have grown into their kinks or realize they're kinky or feel empowered to explore their kinks. So you getting out there, if you can get comfortable on kink dating apps on field or fat life, although asterisk next to fat life, a lot of people have issues with some of the shit that goes on at fat life you'll have your pick of the men. And if there's a big city two hours away and you advertise in that city and you're able to get away for weekends, if you have help with childcare, if you have parents who can take your kids off your hands and you can drive to that city two hours, ain't that long a drive, listen to some podcasts on the way and go to some munches and get involved in that kink scene there, you'll meet some better people to explore and play with, people who may be interested in you, you know, the submissive dynamics that you want to explore, who may be interested in being the dom in that exploration with you, but then aren't going to pivot and make you feel worthless, really kind of dominate you in a creepy way that where you are made to feel insecure and unvalued, And we're that, you know, this person, this motherfucker, I don't think you should see again. What he's doing is communicating to you that you are not less than during a discreet BDSM pre-negotiated scene that has a beginning, a middle, and an end, but less than all the time. Someone he's embarrassed to be seen with, someone he's embarrassed to introduce to his fancy fucking elite Ivy League friends. Yeah, no. I, I, I know a whole bunch of people at this stage of my life. I, I went to a state school. I know a lot of people who went to Ivy League schools. And this attitude that, oh, I went to an Ivy League school. I am fancy and elite. I can't hang out with you. It isn't the majority of position believe attitude of people that i've gotten to know who went to ivy league schools maybe that's how jared kushner feels who bought his way or his way was bought by his daddy into harvard but i've known a few people who went to harvard who were perfectly delightful human beings who were curious about the world and totally willing to hang out with and shoot the shit with people who went to state schools went to community colleges didn't go to college didn't graduate from high school Yeah. Oh my God. I'm sorry. Like I'm really probably overreacting to this at this point. Fuck this guy. He's not the only dumb out there. There's probably other guys in your town who would be interested in meeting a hot, smart, friendly, kinky woman who wanted to date and explore who aren't interested in having kids of their own and aren't assholes. That's what this guy, he is just an asshole and you shouldn't. Waste one more minute thinking about him. You've got to break out of this scarcity mindset. Right now, what you're telling yourself is it's him or no one, that he's the only guy that you can be yourself with sexually. He's your only option. It's not true. And if that means getting on field or Fet Life for you to realize that, please get on field or Fet Life. You don't have to show your face on either of those websites, or getting in your car if mom and dad take the kids for a weekend and driving too much and meeting some other people in a bigger city that has a more active kink scene than the city where you live. Please fucking do it. You owe it to yourself. All right, before we get to this week's listener response calls, let's read some listener tweets. Brad Romance tweets, listening to Fake Dan Savage and this week's Savage Lovecast saying, go get vaccinated against monkeypox. I wish I could, the Irish government's response here has been worse than woeful, absolutely negligent. 450,000 people vaccinated in the States, 600 in Ireland. All right, first, before I say another word, I am notoriously bad at math, but I did a little bit of math here. Ireland's population, 5.1 million. US population, 330 million. If 600 people are vaccinated in Ireland, that's 0.001% of the population. 450,000 people vaccinated in the U.S. That's 0.001% of the population. So 10 times as many people as a percentage of the population vaccinated in the United States, but there have only been 178 cases of monkeypox in Ireland, 25,000 in the United States. So 10 times as many people per capita vaccinated in the U.S., but we have more than 140 times the number of cases. So on some measures, Ireland could be doing better than the U.S., but on other measures, Ireland doing better than the U.S. Scott Pyfo tweets on the Savage Lovecast bingo card. The center square is always point of orgasmic inevitability. I do love that very useful expression. I am now, though, curious what's on the other 24 squares of the Savage Lovecast bingo card. And hey, if there were just 25 words or phrases on my bingo cards, everyone's bingo card would be identical And then everyone playing Savage Lovecast bingo would get bingo at the exact same time. So there are much more than just 25 words and phrases on the Savage Lovecast bingo cards out there. What's on them? Call us or tweet at us and let us know. Finally, RJ Rushmore tweets, I think the dominant guy in this week's Savage Lovecast was looking for a way to get his submissive partner to play with his ass while maintaining the DS dynamic, not the other way around. Huh. I just re-listened to that caller's question, and you are right. Straight dumb dude wants his ass played with. He didn't say that clearly like a lot of people who want their ass played with. He didn't ask directly. But here now, a little updated advice for the caller in the DS relationship who wants his ass played with but doesn't want to upend that established DS dynamic. There are set-it-and-forget-it-ass toys out there, plugs and beads that you can put in yourself and then jump into the DS play with your partner, and maybe try introducing your partner to the seemingly paradoxical concepts of dom-bottoms and sub-tops. They're out there, that's a reference to anal play. Easier to find dom-bottoms and sub-tops in gay porn than straight porn, but the role models you seek can be found. All right. If you want to hear your tweet come out of my mouth, be sure to use the hashtag #SavageLoveCast. And a big thank you to everyone who posted to social media this week about the show. Nothing does a better job of spreading the word about the Lovecast than your tweets and posts and snaps and TikToks and everything else. We appreciate it. And now, listener response calls.
8: Hello, I'm
7: calling in response to the 18-year-old in episode 830 who was wondering about how to get more pleasure out of orgasms and sex with her boyfriend. Um, One thing that I wish I knew when I was 18 and just starting to get sexually active is that you don't have to wait to use a toy until your boyfriend has already came. My current partner and I, he will use a toy on me and get me to come once or even multiple times before he starts engaging in PIV sex with me and I found that the sex itself is a lot more enjoyable after that. Hope this helps.
1: Hi Dan, Nancy and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. This is a response call to last week's intro. As a chess player and Magnum subscriber in Quebec, last week's intro was basically a dream come true. Uh, Dan, I think you are rightly critical of journalists for failing to consult anal bead users before publishing their chess stories. But I wonder if you shouldn't have consulted a chess player before recording your intro, because you seem to think that a cheater would need to have every move spelled out for them in some sort of anal bead buzzer Morse code. But for a world-class player, they don't need every move spelled out for them. A simple buzz to signal something like your opponent just made a mistake would be enough to give them a significant advantage. As for the beads being too noisy, maybe we need an Ojoy oh sex toy segment on how silent they can go.
5: Hello, Dan. This is a response call for the gentleman who's living in a small blue patch of a red state and having monthly sex parties canceled because. Of monkeypox. I think it's a good idea to cancel those parties, but how about retooling the situation since you seem to have built quite a good community there of 50 or so people? How about for the time being making the party a potluck or something social, not sexual, as a means of keeping your community in touch with each other? Spending some good time with each other until the time arrives when you can resume those uh, sex parties.
0: And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for next week's LoveCast or something to say about something I said on this week's LoveCast? Use the voice memo app on your phone to record your question or your comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. You can also call us at 206-302-2064. The Hump 2022 tour wraps up in Los Angeles at Dynasty Typewriter this weekend, Tuesday and Wednesday, at the historic Hayworth Theater. But as the reign of one hump ends, so another begins hump 2022 is dead long live hump 2023 submissions are now open for hump 2023 and if you get your five minute or less dirty little movie into our film festival you will get a cut of every ticket sold go to humpfilmfest.com for tickets streaming links and all the info you need on submitting your film Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Follow Adam Sass on Twitter at The Adam Sass. And you can find, follow, and torment the tech savvy at-risk youth on Twitter at LovecastTSARY. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me, and the tech savvy at-risk youth. And Nancy, will all be back at you next week for an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you so much, as always, for downloading.